Hello, and welcome to Media Talk. I'm your host, Katie Arcieri, and today's topic is privacy. It's no secret that consumers today have more online information at their fingertips than ever before. Big tech platforms such as Amazon, Google, Facebook, and Apple provide a range of online services that allow us to shop, connect, conduct research, and download video games and apps for entertainment. And the pandemic has only accelerated our usage of these platforms as more consumers shift online. But those services, experts say, often come with a price, your personal data. Nearly every website a consumer visits will prompt them with an option to consent to third-party cookie tracking before they can get the information they're seeking. Providing consent may mean allowing online platforms to compile and sell personal information to third parties such as data brokers. Proponents of the current system argue cookies lead to more relevant ads for users. And without ads, services that are free today may have to start charging users. But major tech companies and policymakers alike believe there is a way to serve relevant ads and protect user privacy. California and Virginia have both passed comprehensive privacy legislation. The California Consumer Privacy Act gives consumers the right to opt out of the sale of their personal information. Meanwhile, Virginia's law gives consumers the right to opt out of having their information processed for targeted advertising purposes. And Colorado just recently became the third state to join the fray with privacy legislation that allows consumers to access, correct, and delete personal data. But are these laws enough? And where does the U.S. stand on federal privacy legislation? In this week's Media Talk, we speak with two experts who will provide insights on privacy legislation in the U.S., how online companies are storing our data, and growing concerns among consumers about privacy in the wake of the pandemic. Alexandra Reeve-Givens is the president and CEO of the Center for Democracy and Technology, a nonprofit group that supports laws and policies that protect the privacy of internet users. Cheryl Kingstone is the head of customer experience and commerce at 451 Research, a unit of S&P Global Market Intelligence. Welcome to Media Talk. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. It's a great topic. Thank you. Alex, let's start with you. Oftentimes, we as consumers select the easiest privacy setting to get to information quickly, as opposed to taking several steps to hide that information. But that can be a mistake. What are some consequences of not utilizing privacy settings when you jump online? So I think one of the challenges is that users don't really think about what information might be gathered about them or where it's going to go. You might think that you're sharing information just with the site that you happen to be visiting without realizing that many sites then pass that information on to a vast web of data brokers who are putting together the breadcrumbs of information that you're leaving uh, leaving on different sites as you visit them. What then happens to that information and what does it mean for consumers? Well, one thing that comes from it is targeted ads. Sometimes that can be useful. You're seeing clothing choices that most resonate with things that you are likely to purchase. But the targeting of ads can also limit opportunities that are available to people. If that information is used to target particular job opportunities to people, uh, for example, particular housing ads, for example, or to curate the information that people see in their news feed on a social media platform, for example, All of that can actually end up restricting the things that you see online because people are making assumptions about you in a narrowing way. That's one set of concerns. Another is that often online these days, we are sharing really personal information because an online medium is how we connect with the world. You can think about health apps, for example, and information that women share about their menstrual cycles, uh, for instance, what your Google search history reveals about your medical conditions or your future medical conditions. 
Oftentimes, when people are able to reconnect those dots, it actually tells a very telling picture about some of the most intimate portions of our lives. Um, and that's something that consumers really need to be aware of. Wow. Yeah, that's a lot of very personal information. What else are they collecting? Right. So an IP address, um, sometimes a unique um, advertising identifier that can be tied to your browser, your browsing history, the website that you were visiting when you then went to another site, um, your specific geographic location can often be revealed through the information gathered about you. And all of those pieces, you know, one data point at a time might not actually be that telling, but the inferences that people can put together by patching together those sources of information really can tell a very personal story indeed. Absolutely. I mean, especially now with machine learning and AI, we're absolutely seeing the role of identity and digital identity for personalization uses also. Um, so very much people don't understand how we can stitch together a pretty accurate uh, perspective, not just about the individual, but the whole household. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and Cheryl, how concerned are consumers about data privacy? Is this a lot different since the pandemic or... Well, the, the good news is we do think that there was a level of education that has happened over the past year and a half. People are starting to understand the role of their digital identity. Uh, but there's still a lot of what we would say different personas. So when we look at the ones that you mentioned earlier, the ones that are more carefree about it, those are usually ones that are digital natives, Gen Z, millennials, and they don't do anything to protect their security online. There's a huge gap between that and an older generation. The ones that are um, even older than 25 changes dramatically their attitudes towards data privacy. And then there's ones that are really the middle of the road. We call them more complacent. And so 45% of these, they're really unsure of how to protect their digital identity. They're aware they need to do something about their data. Um, and they're a little bit more pragmatic uh, but the carefree ones, they're early adopters of new technologies. They usually try new products. And their attitudes towards making some active changes um, really do um, show that there is some education factor that needs to take into account. And there are good news that 85% of the ones that really are being much more careful and strongly prefer privacy over personalization. So they're understanding about taking control. Um, and businesses really need to shift from acting as owners of customer data to stewards of digital identities so that we're really collaborating and making changes and empowering consumers to take back control of their own data privacy and security constraints. And we do see that it impacts loyalty with businesses. Okay. I want to head back to Alex for one, one other question related to these profiles that are created online by, by data brokers. Isn't it true that a lot of these, you know, while data brokers are collecting information that, that could be true, that some of that information could actually create an inaccurate profile of individuals as well. Yeah. I mean, and there was a really important example that actually just went uh, to litigation before the Supreme Court in a case called the TransUnion case uh, earlier this year. Here, a plaintiff ended up suing um, because a data broker had gathered a profile on him um, that literally meant that his name came up as having a terrorist watch list designation on his credit report when he tried to buy a car. So incorrect information gathered through, you know, um, people having names that are similar to each other, other data points that match each other. Um, 
that's harmful in the abstract, right? That's offensive to have your name incorrectly listed on a watch list. But there were people in that lawsuit whose information had been shared, the incorrect designation had been shared, and they literally had their credit you know, directly impacted and their availability to engage in the market directly impacted through mistakes. Um, and that's a mistake that we became aware of, people litigated over and was talked about in the public forum. Um, so no, there are real harms. And I think part of the challenge here is that, again, we talk about data being shared. It is really hard to know with whom that data is being shared and therefore how it might be used against a consumer. We talk a lot in privacy advocacy spheres about the need to convey the importance of informational injury, that informational harm is actually a type of harm. Um, and, and part of the reason why that's challenging is that it's often hard to even track how that information is being used. But policymakers are paying attention. A group of bipartisan lawmakers the other day um, actually sent a letter to a series of ad networks asking about what foreign companies they provide user data to over concerns that foreign intelligence agencies could be leveraging data brokers to harvest sensitive information about U.S. users. There have been other examples of ICE, Immigrations and Customs Enforcement, and other law enforcement agencies obtaining customer data from data brokers. Um, so there are kind of those types of uses that we don't even think about, in addition to the ad targeting that we talked about before, kind of the commercial practices and how that might limit op or shape opportunities that are made available to people based on assumptions inferred from data gathered about them. Wow. Yeah, that's... That's amazing how much they can care that how much can be inferred online um, with even just a simple article that we look up or or a post that or a post that we like that kind of thing. Um, but I, I I'm curious who who are these data brokers? Are these just small LLCs, fly by night companies? Um, there are a whole range. It's actually an industry that is um, a little hard to get your arms around. The Federal Trade Commission and others have have talked about studying the space. Um, the letter that I alluded to before that lawmakers had sent asking um, marketers or ad networks who they share information, you know, one company responded and had a list of over 150 data brokers that they were sharing information. And these are not household names. I mean, this is part of the problem. We know to talk about Google's collection practices, right? People know to focus on what Google is doing. We know to focus on what Facebook is doing. We do not have a household level conversation about what data brokers are doing and how that space um, is being used. And often these are very small companies or again, they're business to business companies. And so consumers don't know about them and can't really publicly shame them because there's no voting with your wallet um, in terms of you know, companies that are actually betraying user trust. So that is a huge piece of the problem here is needing to shine a better light on that industry, how it functions, and what the trade-offs are for some of these practices, whether consumers really want the ad targeting that happens at the level it does in exchange for the extreme cost that can come from the specificity of that information that they gather. Wow. Okay. And then Cheryl, I want to talk with you about the consumer piece um, and to kind of um, touch on some of the earlier points you made. Not every demographic is as concerned as the other with, with privacy. What, tell me more about why that is. Yeah. And to be honest with you, you know, everything that's going on here, a lot of my concern comes down to we're trying to put in place support for regular federal regulation, right? So when we look at this, it's really surprising that only 23% of 18 to 24 year olds were very likely to support that. And look at the fact that they don't really understand all the points of reference that Alex was just pointing out. That's where we do have to spend more time educating them. You know, as you get older, 
a little bit more support, but we're talking in the 40s, right? And then the rest of it is somewhat likely. So the fact that we still have a huge proponent of different ages and different understandings of how we're using some of this data and how the, the role that governments are trying to do to put back the power in their own hands is absolutely something that we need to understand and share. So the way consumers are expecting to see their data, the fact that they're expecting it to keep private and secure, as you just heard, is not really what is happening. Um, but they want to make sure that they're not necessarily um, impeding what we call the frictionless experience. So they do want privacy and they do want security, but they also want to make sure that it's frictionless and not too difficult to understand and manage um, their own privacy and security. Um, and they're willing to pay a fee for someone to help them and guide them for it. Because when we take a look at this consent-based cookieless word in the future, there's a lot of changes that are coming about by the, um, yes, the Googles and the Apples, but it will um, hopefully trickle down to the rest of it. So the fact that consumers are really distrustful of that third-party cookie tracking, is it going to be a significant impact on their consumer trust? And so we have to understand where that is going. So. Uh, when we're engaging with consumers in their online digital experiences, that they're very transparent in how that data is being used. I mean, I think one of the challenges, so in your categories of people, Charlotte, it's my full-time job to be a privacy advocate. And yeah. even I, in my online experience, I will confess to our friendly audience that you know I don't read the full length of you know the terms and conditions exactly. of a privacy exactly. notice, right? Nobody does. And I think part of the challenge here is that even for those people in the survey who are informed, who know to ask questions, who know to try and take protective measures, it is a fallacy to say that they really have true choice to, to protect their information. That's not how the system works right now, at least in the US. I mean, many times we go to different websites and you see the cookie notice that come up. You can try to navigate away from the automatic, I agree and toggle your preferences. Sometimes that bar works, sometimes it doesn't. All of the design elements are pushing you into the direction of accepting cookies and, and exactly. trying to, mm -hmm. to adopt that. Mm -hmm. um, but the reality is that that is how our ecosystem and our legal system is set up today. It is such a bizarre phenomenon, right? In the physical world, we've learned to trust the safety of the food we eat or products we use because regulations establish basic safeguards. We know if we were buying something in the grocery store that absent something horribly wrong happening, you can trust that the food on the shelf is not going to make you sick. But when it comes to privacy, the basic legal framework still just relies on individuals to protect themselves. If companies disclose their practices in the fine print somewhere, they can basically collect and use your data as they please. And 45% and are unsure how to exactly what your point is, how to protect their digital identity and data online. Right. But when they're when we ask them, are they willing to support regulation to do this? It then drops down to, you know, the, the, what I was saying, anywhere from 25 to 40% are very likely to do this. Yeah. Let me ask you guys about laws. We know some states have proposed privacy laws to combat concerns around privacy, California, Virginia, Colorado. But Alex, what momentum do you see for federal privacy legislation? So one important lesson from the push in state laws in recent years shows that this is a kitchen table issue, right? Like this is something state lawmakers um, have limited time, limited resources. And the fact that as many states um, have introduced, considered, and in some instances now passed privacy legislation shows that this is something that resonates with people. These issues are getting through um, we still have to quibble with the people that responded to the survey, but 
for many people, these are kitchen table issues and, and voters are watching and paying attention. So I think the state legislation helps lay the groundwork for federal legislation. At the same time, we've also seen this swell of interest in Congress. So we had something like 23 privacy bills introduced in the last Congress over the past couple of years. Lawmakers from different states, different parties, all saying this is something that people need to pay attention to. So there is momentum there. Now there's work to be done figuring out exactly what the solutions should look like. There's been some coalescence around some ideas that need to be on the table. For example, a package of individual rights the individuals should know what data is being collected about them. They should be able to access that. They should be able to correct that if it's wrong. They should be able to ask for its deletion if it's incorrect. That's kind of one set of issues that people are talking about. Another set of issues is what I talked about, moving away from this notion that people should just click on a notice and consent button, uh, and that's how we protect our privacy. This idea that there should be some baseline protections data minimization, which is the idea that companies should only collect exactly what they need for the purpose they have told you about and that you expect consistent with the services being delivered to you. Um, that there should be just some flatline restrictions on the uses of sensitive data, for example, or some of the most sensitive cases we can think about, like your facial recognition pattern, different biometric information. So that's another set of issues. Then there are these really thorny questions of how do we actually give this thing some teeth and enforce it? Should that rest with the Federal Trade Commission? Should it rest with state attorneys general to come in and be able to enforce this federal law? Should there be a private right of action for consumers to be able to sue? What should the damages and the punishments and the fines look like in that, in that web? And then there's this question of preemption. If there's a federal law should there still be allowed to be state statutes that could maybe ratchet even more in favor of consumer protections? Or should we have a uniform standard across the country and bar the ability of states to be able to legislate in the space? Those are some of the questions that are swirling now. Some of those have more agreement than others. Um, and the last piece I'll add is that increasingly there is a conversation around the discriminatory uses of data. We can talk more about that, but I think that's a really important thread that can be added into the conversation as well. Okay, great. And just adding to that, so a timeline is is kind of unclear right now for for when we might see privacy legislation. It could be 2022 and beyond. Yeah, it's so funny. Um, I remember when I first started my career in policy work, uh, a very good mentor said, never, ever give a timeline because you're always <laughs> wrong. And people in D.C. remember. So I try not to. But um, I do think there is I think there is energy and momentum right now. It does feel a little bit um like the advocates or the interested parties, so that's that's businesses, it's consumer groups, um, et cetera, are in a little bit of a holding pattern. Um, we haven't forced the dialogue to say, okay, these are all the issues on the table. Now we have to do some deal-making to think what the trade-offs are. If the protections are really strong, then maybe it's okay to preempt state laws. Um, there, there's negotiating to be done. We haven't really had a ref like call the starting whistle of that debate yet. Um, and that's where personally as an advocate, you know, I am very hopeful that the Biden administration will step in and show leadership to say, this is a priority. We know what types of issues need to be addressed. Now is the time for folks to actually come to the table and find the deal. That part hasn't really happened yet. Some lawmakers are starting to convene those roundtables. There's been some good news about that in recent weeks of a couple senators and, and members on the House side starting those conversations. But we really need that push to give this the, the, the boost it needs um, for lawmakers to come to the table and try and find a deal. 
And big tech actually does support federal privacy legislation for the most part. Right? Yeah, it's been really interesting to see. And of course, there is a ton of devil in the details there as to what people actually agree to. But um, a lot of companies have realized exactly what Cheryl said, which is this is a matter of brand identity, brand trust, and getting consumers to believe in their products. And far better for them if there's actually a baseline standard that they know they need to comply with and can have some certainty for planning their products around um, and establishing that consumer trust, as opposed to just the endless tirade of bad newspaper stories, frankly, when you know some rogue actor has another data breach or uses an improper use of people's data, which sets a tarnish across the entire industry. Absolutely. A lot of businesses, they do want the certainty of legislation. Um, and really just to put this long debate I think finally to rest for a little bit as to exactly what the guidelines should be. And and it's not just the fact that it's being legislated, right? So some of the data that we also have on the enterprise side is that 92% of businesses, especially that are consumer-based businesses, are willing and are investing in technology to make sure that they can effectively give consumers the ability to delete what can be legally deleted, the ability to try to improve that transparency about what's being collected, And of course, they're already doing the whole opt-in and opt-out, as we've already discussed some concerns with, though. Um, But the fact that businesses are proactively taking steps is a first step. Now we have to make sure that whatever they're proactively taking steps into is going to be frictionless so that we don't put the onus on the consumer um, or else nothing will happen. Right. Uh, Businesses allowing consumers to say opt out of third-party cookie tracking, that's going to engender trust keep them shopping with that brand. But what's the reputational risk, Cheryl, if they if these businesses don't protect data among consumers who are putting their trust in those companies? I mean, absolutely the risk. I mean, 80% of consumers won't shop with that organization again. Um, there's the fact that we even are creating the ability to have friction in the experience that is um, ensuring the fact that they're not going to shop there. So there's um, loyalty effects there's the um, opt-out, meaning they're not going to shop again. There are so many ways to put a revenue figure on the momentum to make sure that businesses do this effectively. And Alex, I'm curious because, you know, what are your thoughts on whether big tech is, is doing enough? I mean, if Google, you know, for instance, is working to phase out third-party cookies. Um, I mean, in your opinion, is, is big tech you know, doing enough to protect data, or is there more work to be had? Yeah, so I do. I I do really welcome the evolution in the dialogue that has happened. Whether it's Google moving away from third-party cookies, Apple obviously has chosen to lean in to privacy as part of their brand identity. You can now see massive billboards when you're driving down the highway where they're t- touting their privacy settings. Um, they've made it much harder for apps in the App Store, for example, to track across devices. It now requires conscious opt-in by users. All of those steps really matter because um, in the absence of legislation, we actually need to look to the major platforms to be improving their own practices and and working to compete with each other to protect users' privacy as a a competitive advantage. That's all to the good. I do think, um, again, there's some devil in the details as to how some of these programs are operating. One of Google's um, moves has been to, in future, retire third-party cookies and instead move to something that they call the flock system, Mm -hmm. which Mm -hmm. is look at users' very recent browser history, so your kind of most 10 most recent uh, iterations, and group you with other users that have a similar search history. And the vision is that instead of sharing, hey, Alex just looked at these past 10 websites, instead they will just give kind of a description of this cohort of users 
and what attributes that cohort of users shares without giving individualized information. And again, Apple has creating an identity also with the IDFA and where they're trying to do on the mobile standpoint. Yeah. So so that so that type of move is is it's creative. It's really interesting. Um, I'll, I'll share this because we've, we've said it publicly and we've warned. I mean, I also do worry about a world in which someone is grouped with people just based on their recent browsing history and what that means for how things are targeted to you, right? There's a huge risk of potential bias in a setting like that. Uh-huh. If you're profiling people that have just come from a series of religious websites or a particular newspaper or what have you, um, how do marketers then target their ads towards that group? And what are they assuming about that group based on their recent browsing history? Um, so there's still questions to ask. I think people are right to still be challenging these things and saying, is this really the model? Should we be working more to just focus on contextual ads? For example, ads on a particular website versus profiling people based on their race and browsing history. So there's clearly a lot more work to be done, but I do welcome the fact that tech companies are realizing the need to step up, are realizing the need to police their own behavior, and then publicly are talking about the need for regulation, which of course helps consumer groups that are also pushing for the same thing to focus policymakers' attention on the issues. Yeah, Cheryl, anything to add on that? Yeah, it's just uh, right now there is still some concern about when and how we're going to execute on that future of the cookie-less world. I mean, Google has delayed uh, the onset of a lot of this. Um, and consumers are really speaking with their their feet and justifying that they want to understand a little bit more of where it's trying to go. And the contextual ads actually do add a lot of value because it really is about trying to not be that one-to-one approach. Uh, but to do it in more of a relevant, trusting way. And so that's where we do look at more contextual experiences that do add value versus the one-to-one personalization that everyone is getting a little bit more um, leery about in the future that we have been trying to look at for the past decade and haven't really had a direction on how to fix it. Okay. I want to ask both of you, what can consumers do? What's, what are the top things that consumers can do when they're online to protect their privacy, especially in the absence of any kind of federal privacy law? What are what are some top tips that both of you have? So, I mean, one thing, I've spent half of this interview making fun of those cookie notices, but they do actually mean something. Um, so I think people trying to be a good data steward and bother to clicking through to address those do not track settings when you can is one important, valuable step. Um, another tip is to really spend time checking the privacy settings on your browser, your email and social media accounts, and the privacy settings on your phone. In part because of public pressure, companies have now added many options that allow people to significantly reduce the amount of data that is shared about them. They're not always quite so focused on making sure that consumers are aware of those options and taking advantage of them. So if users take it upon themselves to go into those settings on those accounts and really spend time kind of toggling and adjusting those settings, you actually can do a lot um, to reduce the amount of information that is being shared about you. You particularly want to look at what tools are sharing your location information, have access to your microphone, or sharing your information with third parties. Um, Those are some small steps that you can take just to get a little bit more control over your information. And of course, send that signal to the companies as well that you're watching and you care about how your information is used. Yeah, absolutely. Um, those are great recommendations. I can tell you that you know, 42% of consumers are trying to limit the amount of information that they share online. Other ways that they're trying to protect themselves is signing up for alerts to notify of suspicious activities. Really pay attention to that. Um, use a security suite, you know, to make sure that you understand and they can help you track and 
um, and maybe even provide you some guidance on when you're not opting out and tracking features that are there so that you can then go back and manage your privacy settings online. Um, I know also businesses are paying attention to really forcing multi-factor authentication. And we're also looking at things like biometric authentication so that we um, avoid more of the, the falseness too of the data. So there's a lot of um, bad agents out there that are really taking advantage of ones that aren't really proactively using um, password managers and really not understanding how to, to use VPNs or encryption properly. And so there's so many ways that technology is also can help you, not just hurt you. Great. Uh, both of you have provided great insights for today's privacy podcast. I'm going to, we have a few more minutes. Any parting thoughts or last takeaways that you guys want to, want to include? I am trying not to feel overwhelmingly depressed by Charles' statistics. I do think that there is a real uh, consumer interest in protecting privacy. And again, this important realization that the burden should not be on users. We need companies to own the responsibility here. And we need legislators and regulators to help companies actually internalize that burden. So let's change those statistics. Like get, let's get more consumers reporting that they care about this, that a regulatory intervention will help restore the balance um, so that users don't feel the burden. Um, and I hope others help spread the word in terms of raising awareness about what privacy risks actually can mean for the opportunities and the information that others may gather about you. Um, and start thinking about proactive solutions and the role that legislation could do in helping to level the playing field for users. And to be sure, Cheryl, I mean, I think that consumers are very concerned about their privacy and it's been you know, more so in, during the pandemic, right? It's the carefree younger generation that's a little less concerned where the baby boomers Absolutely. are more concerned. That's yeah. exactly it. So if I could talk to my daughter, I, I want to talk to my daughter who is 20, you know, 18 to 24 is the most at risk here that the data shows that they are too very carefree. Um, and so we have to make them more aware as they become older and more responsible and have more of a, a, a stake in the game here to pay attention to that the government isn't against you and, and move that forward. But I also work with a lot of businesses and enterprises. And so the one thing I want people to take away from, from that standpoint is that the investments you're making um, on your infrastructure to ensure that you have that single view of the customer, but that you're doing it as in a trustworthy way, you know, making sure that it's secure, making sure that you're able to invest in data breach and fraud alerts. Um, that's going to pay off in the end because there are features there that are going to have a strong influence on loyalty. Great. Thanks to both of you for being here and uh, hope that you can join us again on another media talk. Thanks for a fun conversation. Thanks, Katie. Great conversation.